This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. Our guest today is Fraser Rice. Fraser is the Regional Director for Pendleton Square. He's also the author and um, podcast host of Wealth Actually. Fraser, thanks for coming on today. Oh, Edward, I'm thrilled to be here. All right, so let's let's jump into some of the things that we were talking about earlier. Talk to us about wealth. Wealth, actually, what what was some of the inspiration that you had uh, about that position? Sure, lawyer by background, so I went to law school and had a lot of great experiences around financial securities regulation. I worked at the SEC my final year in law school, and then I worked for a law firm for a couple of years after that, uh, a lot of securities regulation and lobbying and banking law and stuff like that. Uh, I then, uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer my whole life. The billable hour and I weren't great friends, but I did uh, like a lot of the financial components of what I was doing. So I met a fellow by the name of Tony Guernsey, who had started Wilmington Trust's office, uh, basically out of his Rolodex. He'd come out of UBS and JP Morgan. And uh, I basically learned the craft there, and I did that for uh, approximately 16 years, uh, where I was taking care of a lot of clients and doing a lot of issue spotting and solving around tax and structure and investment management and things like that. And so around 14 years into it, uh, and I'd had a, a lot of experience with uh, you know, friends in the arts, and I like to write and do a lot of things related to broadcasting. I did a lot of that in college. Uh, I thought I had a screenplay in me uh, related to funny private banking stories, and so did I got. Write, did you write a treatment? Uh, well, I, I wrote 200 pages of notes around it, and uh, I kind of got through it and said, uh, "This is this isn't going to work. It's not funny enough. It's not compelling enough." And I said, "Maybe I'll turn it into something else." And so, wealth actually, the book was my way to sort of take some of the things that I learned uh, from private banking and lawyering and my previous career in politics uh, and try to come up with some lessons that people could learn uh, and use uh, for their own wealth management perspectives. And that's where I got started on that. Uh, The broadcasting component of wealth, actually, I've been doing for a few years now. And uh, it was my way to uh, sort of scratch that itch and also to Uh, learn a bit more about a lot of different things in a short amount of time. And uh, selfishly speaking, and from a marketing perspective, it was a way to uh, sort of get out in front of uh, other people uh, talking about things that I wasn't really knowledgeable about, but could learn about and kind of learn about on the fly. So what's the draw to working in the high net worth and private client space for you and, and working with family offices? My favorite thing about it is dealing with people who have been successful. Uh, and I don't mean that from a monetary sense. It's usually around people who have had some level of achievement. And I groove on that. I like hearing the stories about how uh, great or interesting things had been done uh, and how that manifests itself into a uh, family situation. I think that melds well with what I think is something personal, which is I I like solving problems. I like dealing with complication. And uh, you put the two together, and that's what sort of the high net worth, ultra high net worth family office world is about. And then finally, you know, from sort of a uh, sort of using the picks and shovels that I got trained to use, uh, I'm able to use my law degree and my background in wealth management to not only see around the corners and try to spot issues and keep people out of trouble, but also uh, help fix things uh, where possible. 
So speaking of fixing things, if you, you look back into the work that you've done, you know, obviously the, the space is, uh, values privacy uh, quite uh, high on the list there. Without violating any confidences, can you give us uh, any anecdotes or one of those problems that you've had to fix that you thought was quite unique or quite challenging as you're going through it? Sure. Uh, well, there's certainly the ones that I'll definitely keep under the covers are, are revolve around uh, sort of branches of families that, that go on the wrong side of the law. Uh, and you have to really kind of think quickly and provide the good advice and find the right people to make sure that people are, uh, you know, that they're well protected, that they use the system correctly and are part of the system correctly, but also, uh, you know, that justice is served. And you have a very specific role in that uh, when you're working with the ultra high net worth. But I think where, you know, sort of a specific example, which I thought was pretty cool, um, and didn't really net anything to anybody, but it saved the client a lot of money, uh, was the idea. And this revolved around something that I think is very popular and about to get really popular with the new tax legislation, whatever form it takes, uh, was someone who had uh, a leveraged life insurance policy or a premium finance policy. And back in 2007, I was looking at it and it looked to me like it, it you know, what ends up happening in a lot of cases is that the assumptions are based on linear growth uh, assumptions. And oftentimes that's not how the world works. And in this case, uh, a lot of things had gone right for this insurance policy and the loan that was backing it up. And I sort of looked at it and said, geez, you know, this could this could get really haywire if the market were to go down 10 or 15 or 20 percent. And no one's really thought about that. And uh, I ended up uh, sort of corralling the insurance expert and the lawyer who helped thinking about this and said, you know, the the client here is sort of positive $3 million on the transaction. Would we consider selling the insurance policy to the secondary market and sort of taking this off the table? Uh, you know, his broader situation is such that I don't think it's really going to make that big a difference in his estate planning or taking care of his estate planning liability. And ultimately, we all decided that, and the client agreed, and we sold the policy off, and uh, the client was plus $3 million on the transaction. And then uh, later in 2008, the secondary market uh, for selling insurance policies essentially collapsed, and uh, and the dollars that would have supported the policy collapsed as well, and he would have been facing a large collateral call to uh, shore up the premium financing. And so that's something I always look back at my career and said, you know, in one way, just sort of looking and doing the right thing. Uh, had a really substantial impact and a positive one on the client. And uh, to that end, uh, that's something I really take pride in. All right. So that's a very interesting sort of situation and intricate in, into there. What, what are some things that might not be as intricate, but were some good lessons learned for you uh, during that process? Well, uh, among the the most important things is, is surround yourself with experts. I mean, there's no way that I was going to be the one person to drive the whole process. In a sense, I spotted the issue. And I think maybe where I was helpful was uh, alerting uh, everybody that I thought there was an issue. And fortunately, we were surrounded by really good experts at the insurance, at the investment management, at the trustee, and at the lawyer level. And we had a client that uh, was receptive to our advice. Uh, so I think there's a lot to learn in correctly staffing a lot of the structure that's around wealth. Uh, I think it's very easy to get enamored with the transactional nature of putting trusts together or other types of situations, and you don't really see what happens 
five or 10 years down the line. Well, in my case, it was five or 10 years down the line from when the transaction was put together. And uh, it's important to keep the lines of communication open. And it's important to be around really intelligent people uh, who can provide that good advice. Can you tell us your horror story? This is actually a pretty good one. Uh, I had a situation where a client, we, we were the trustee of a trust, and a beneficiary, let's call it a third-generation beneficiary, uh, was interested in uh, getting a miniature pony for a party uh, that weekend. And so I had to uh, try to miracle my way a horse to New Mexico, and I ended up going down to the magazine kiosk at the bottom of the office building, and there, like a beacon of light, was miniaturepony.com. And uh, they were based in Texas, and I called them up and said, I, I need to get a horse to New Mexico by the end of the week. Can you do anything? And he goes, son, you haven't got a care in the world. You can FedEx them. And I said, how much is it going to cost me to do all this? And it was it was 20 grand for the horse, which $20,000 you know, could buy you something that might run at Saratoga. And then it was six grand for shipping. And I thought, geez, you know, I could I could go down there and do it myself. And probably that's a good weekend for me, I think. And uh, anyway, the guy got his horse. And that was always sort of a fun. Uh, uh, I, I always tell that story. Story. It's a lot of fun. Love it. Well, Fraser, I, I enjoy your podcast. You certainly have a very diverse group of guests on your show. And, you know, it kind of goes to the point of having to be so well versed in so many different areas if you're going to work in the private client space um, and with family offices. You know, how do you, what do you think about that when you look at the overall landscape of people dealing with? Uh, private client work and 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 being ready to handle a pony store a pony issue or any of these other types of issues that show up. Well, so I've been I, I'm for the private client world. I'm blessed with two things. Number one, I I have wide curiosity, uh, which means that I'm interested in a lot of different things, whether it's miniature ponies, as it turns out, or uh, I produced a horror movie I've in podcasts and authoring and, and done a whole bunch of other different things. I was in politics before and I have a law degree, which means that uh, for better or worse, I ask a lot of questions. Um, all of those things I think make me a formidable uh, advisor for uh, larger complicated situations because I uh, hopefully, I'm not only just seeing uh, the the tree that has the the fungus on it, but maybe the impact that that might have on the whole forest, and and then being able to uh, have the confidence to be able to go out and find out the right expertise to help fix the problem and maybe clear out that tree and maybe a couple of other trees to to save what's going on in the rest of the in the rest of things. Uh, the podcast is helpful for me uh, largely a I'm interested in it I like broadcasting I like speaking it's probably obvious that I'm long-winded on this show <laughs> uh, but it's a great way for me to meet people and since I control it and I run it I I talk to people that I'm interested in and I talk about topics that I'm interested in and um, invariably you know as it intersects with uh, my work life uh, the, those are the things that ultimately I think are a great differentiator and and uh, let people know that when uh, when the situation is dropped in your lap, it's not going to necessarily be a cookie cutter thing that an algorithm is going to fix. And you're also dealing with human beings who have feelings, uh, preconceived notions, uh, bad experiences and good experiences in the past that they'd like incorporated in their uh, wealth situation and they want their fears addressed. Uh, and that's not something you necessarily can read out of a book uh, 
So if you're able to bring in understanding from a wide array of areas, I think that gives you a better chance to really identify with the client's problem, not just from a technical perspective, but from an emotional one too. So one of the areas uh, that you covered recently, and you've you've done a couple of uh, had a couple of guests on this topic, is around blockchain uh, and crypto, how it fits into the wealth planning considerations and other things of that nature. Do you want to give us a little overview of your thoughts on on that? Because it's especially with your wide aperture that you look at some of these issues. What, what do you? How do you see that these days? So uh, it, it, it's such a vast thing. It's almost like the term hedge fund. It means a lot of things to a lot of different people now, but it the crypto world is just, it creates so much infinite fascination for me. Uh, the original Satoshi paper was written. He, he basically came up with the blockchain and Bitcoin as a way to have a less frictioned uh, transaction experience uh, with his pals in Japan to get model train parts. And I love that story because what Bitcoin has become in a lot of ways for people is is a an investment component and it's drifted into Ethereum and other blockchain areas. And I have trouble having an opinion as to whether Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other uh, cryptocurrencies are good investments. I'll leave that to different experts. Uh, I think the blockchain component where you have outsourced uh, voting to rationalize uh, transactions and, and create durability around that. I think that's something that's going to permeate through all sorts of components of the economy. And we're, we're not even out of the batter's box on that yet. And so I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I, since I work for a trust company, I just, because these things, it, it turns into one rabbit hole into another of understanding. I, I really focus on the issues related to being the fiduciary to someone else's cryptocurrency. And that is something that is, in a sense, antithetical to the ethos behind uh, the cryptocurrency world, uh, where uh, you know, sort of being you know, the idea you could be off the grid, you can you're in total control of things, you don't have you can have transactions without involving the government. That all falls apart when you die, and or if you put it in trust for somebody else because you have a hundred million dollars of net worth and you're trying to avail yourself of a situation that reduces your estate taxes. And uh, we're just really, we're in the infancy of that too. And the, the, the tricky part is that if you are a fiduciary of somebody else's cryptocurrency or their NFTs or any other sort of digital currency in many ways, uh, you have a lot of liability. And, you know, I'm really in the process now of trying to think about workflows in ways in which people can be responsible for other people's cryptocurrency, but do it in a way it's, that's safe. And we're, we're really in the early innings of that. Hopefully, we're in the later innings of this this global pandemic, uh, and you certainly see a lot of different parts of the wealth management private client landscape, including your work with family offices. You know, what do you think is going to change based on you know your your conversations and your work with your clients in terms of pre will stay with us after the pandemic's done, and, and then what's going to remain the same? I, I take it take it from your your client perspective as well as yours. Sure. So, you know, I think from a client perspective, uh, at, at the base level, I think the traditional way of maintaining relationships with the client has fundamentally been altered. Uh, now, I deal with a lot of older clients who are, uh, I would say, tech savvy, but not necessarily uh, getting the first bored ape uh, NFT. Um, but I think the days of, you know, sort of the quarterly in-person meeting and playing golf with them and so on is 
something that's going to be reduced. Uh, and I think it's reduced not just because of sort of the work from home slash Zoom experience that makes things easier. I think the consolidation around the industry, the consolidation around the RIA space, uh, the uh, you know private equity is going to want to see a return on these things. And then also uh, the people who were the driving forces behind a lot of RIAs are going to be retiring. Uh, you're going to see sort of an economic um, scenario where it's just cheaper and easier to uh, maintain relationships to some extent uh, with clients. Uh, and I would just say that's that's kind of at the zero to 10 million level. I think the importance of relationships at the higher level, uh, it's going to get even more pronounced. And I think you're still going to be able to charge for that in a, in a larger sense. Um, but I think it's going to come down to execution too. I think the stakes have gone up and there's going to be less patience for jibber jabber and, uh, uh, bureaucracy and, and the people are going to be, uh, I'd say much more attuned to, uh, having an experience with their financial institutions and their financial advisors that they have with other areas that are a lot easier. And so when the industry doesn't catch up with that, uh, I think people are going to be less patient, and I think they're going to be less patient as we come out of the pandemic uh, and things get normalized. I think we're in a uh, a different world. Uh, one other aspect of that that I think uh, that I'd like to mention is we are the idea of uh, data. Uh, really affecting financial advice is something that that hasn't we haven't even scratched the surface yet. I think the idea of AI and machine learning is going to be really important going forward. I think that the uh, the value proposition of wealth management is drifting away from asset management and financial planning to some extent and it is going more toward behavioral finance. And I think the AI uh, machine learning component where uh, the people who are providing that advice are going to be underwriting clients as much as advising them uh, and getting data from all sorts of different sources, not just the questionnaire that the clients fill out and making decisions around that. I think that's the next step for wealth management generally. And that intersection of of big, uh, what I'd call real data with uh, some of the other tools in place, that's something that I think is going to be a big part going forward. Is it a pure technology, just we're going to digitalize more things, you know, digitize more things, or is it a completely different process as well, right? Because to me, you read all the studies and I don't know, I don't think I've picked up a study that's looked at the financial services industry in the last five or 10 years that hasn't said digital is the future, right? I don't think anybody's taken the other side of that, that bet. Uh, where do you think, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think digital is a component of the future, but I think the the real shift is that psychology is the future, or at least it's the at least it's the next ten to twenty years. Uh, there is no question to me that the value proposition behind wealth management, the RIA space, you know, financial institutions generally, is going to skew toward behavioral finance, and that the value that the that the industry is putting forth uh, in dealing with clients is is falling in that world. That's going to have tremendous ramifications on business models and how you charge for things. It's also going to require better data than, than financial institutions have currently uh, from their clients. Uh, they, they So we're going to throw out the efficient frontier and, and everybody's going to read Kahneman and, and Jung? Well, you're not going to throw out the efficient frontier. It's going to be completely baked into all of the advice that you get. Uh, and
and then the the Kahneman and Becker and some of the other sort of behavioral finance authors, I think that's where the change is going to be. Uh, and I think there's going to be, you know, I think the concept of direct indexing, um, I, I know that uh, there are a lot of firms that deal with that, but the, in, the, in the quest to be different uh, in a world where algorithms and so on are going to be out there sort of, let's say, creating a sea of sameness of advice, uh, the ability to really tailor the uh, uh, the asset allocations and so on at a low price for people uh, is going to be important going forward. I guess I could add another. I, I think the integration of tax advice and wealth management is going to become much more pronounced going forward as well. When you look at Tennessee... Hmm? Let's bring it back to what you focus on, uh, uh, spend a lot of your time on, is Tennessee as a jurisdiction for a trust company. What's the, what are the, some of the things that are, are attractive for that and, and why are families looking to, to that state and, and to the things that you're focusing sure. on? Sure. So uh, trusts, uh, trusts are very uh, useful tools for a lot of different things. And, and every trust in general has a grantor, it has a trustee, and it has beneficiaries. Uh, and at the trustee level, uh, what people typically think of as trusts, uh, and generally that trustee, whether an individual or a corporation, has three major things to think about. There are others, but these are the three big ones. They have to administer, safeguard, and kind of uh, take care of the assets. They have to invest the assets for the current beneficiaries and future beneficiaries. And then they have to distribute the assets to those beneficiaries according to the terms of the trust. And then we're silent according to state law. And then we're silent there then in, in, in their discretion. And what, what happens is, is that over the course of the last 30 years, uh, people have figured out, uh, wealthy families in particular figured out, that not, no one person or no one corporation is good at all three. And uh, and so that has led to the proliferation of jurisdictions that divide those different functions so that you can have someone who's an expert in real estate, if you're a real estate family, making the investment decisions. You can have an administrative trustee who's in charge of all the back office work. And then maybe you can have a combination of someone who understands the family and then a corporate trustee who can provide structure around the distribution decisions. And that flexibility, that type of flexibility, is something that's become extremely important to uh, most high net worth and ultra high net worth families and very important to family offices, especially those that have built their franchise or their structure around a family business or a particular, uh, I guess, some sort of edge that they have in terms of investing. Uh, so where does Tennessee fit in with that? Uh, over the last 30 years, the usual suspects in terms of jurisdiction have been sort of Delaware. I worked for Wilmington Trust, very acutely aware of its advantages. South Dakota, Nevada, Wyoming, uh, New Hampshire, and Tennessee. And uh, I was attracted to Tennessee and the trust company that uh, Betsy Brown's built down there with Pendleton uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, namely, it is extremely competitive uh, from a state tax environment, uh, which is very it's compelling uh, for most people, especially those who are in high tax state situations like New York or California or Illinois. Uh, so there's lots of different planning you can do to reduce your state tax liabilities, which can be up to 10 to 15%, depending on what you're dealing with. But it also has different flexibility, both in that direction situation, uh, the ability to have trusts last for multiple generations. And then finally, from an asset protection standpoint, uh, Tennessee has a very, uh, I'd say, uh, in-tune legislature that is interested in protecting the rights of families uh, in a court system 
system that's been built up around that. If you have to look back to working with with the families that you've um, supported over the years, what are some of the, the pitfalls that you wish that, that they would have avoided that, that came up? Well, I, I think that the threats to wealth to me, uh, the usual suspects in the threats to wealth category to me are, you know, sort of uh, bad investments, poor tax planning, geopolitical risk, things like that. Uh, I think the actual uh, major threats to wealth really revolve around uh, a lack of communication and uh, the bad habits that that supports amongst uh, the next generations. It's really my sort of personal thesis that the liabilities of a family increase geometrically, while most of the time the assets increase linearly. So you're constantly fighting that equation uh, with any of the planning that you're doing. And if you have poor communication, which in my opinion results in expensive conflict that accelerates that liability uh, curve that I just described, that makes it that much harder to invest around that or plan around that or otherwise try to grow the assets uh, so that they reach an escape velocity that allows them to survive. You know those beneficiaries who have uh, you know poor habits, whether they spend too much or have Lamborghini habits or get sued uh, or uh, you know they stub their toe business wise and are a drag on those on those assets. So I, I really go back to the idea that. The biggest mistakes I've seen over time are when the communication and the why of the structuring and the estate planning is not integrated well with all of the different constituencies that are affected by uh, that are affected by the different planning, uh, and so that can be the communication between the first generation and the second generation. It can be the communication at the second generation level. Uh, it can be uh, lack of communication with the, the the service providers, the trustees, the investment managers, the communities in which they live and serve. Uh, all of these things uh, to have a well thought out communication plan to really uh, to to really suss out the why. You don't have to necessarily open up the kimono to everything to everybody, but I think creating that context where people understand why things are in place uh, is a great way to develop experience so that when difficulties happen, and they do because it's life, uh, there you're not expending energy dealing with emotional issues when you're getting to the really difficult part of uh, trying to manage around difficulties that real life presents, whether from an investment or a tax or natural disaster or any other type of thing that pops up. So I, I, I like what you mentioned in terms of the wealth versus risk. I, you, you label it liabilities, but I, I think risk might be a, a, a good good thing to, to look at that, that access, right? So, you know, and I mean, access like on a chart, right? you know, wealth going up linearly, maybe a step change after a liquidity event, but the risks are just an exponential uh, rise on, on, on that chart. And that's a, that's a really interesting way to, to think about it because, um, uh, I don't. I don't think that that connection is made. Oh, and it's numerical too, because if you start out with generation one with you know husband and wife or you know partners, and then you have three kids, uh, that, that more variables. You have three kids, and then the introduction of spouses, uh, which are things that are never controlled for at the first generation of estate planning. You you kind of hope and uh, you, you try to build in guardrails around that. But that's the numerical aspect. And then when you get to the third generation, you know you're looking. You could be looking at anywhere six to eight more kids and uh, and each one of those situations has 
infinite uh, different factors that you can try to plan for, but you can't fully. And you're trying to create a situation, in my opinion, that is sturdy enough to provide the protection against all the different things we talk about, you know, whether it's taxes or creditors and et cetera, et cetera, but flexible enough to deal with uh, changes in circumstances. Um, you know, it, it, on a on a positive note, I mean, when people were talking about, uh, you know, even 30 or 40 years ago, putting trusts together and trying to sort of talk about what might be permissible investments or what might be prudent on that front. They had no idea what the internet was, let alone cryptocurrencies. And those are those are interesting opportunities that I think are useful in not only, you know, sort of creating a possibility for increased investment returns, but also for integrating the things that are important to future generations and uh, keeping a structure that that is... Um, not just flexible, but I would say uh, amenable to change and willing to accept change and incorporate it to make uh, a lot of the values that are important to families even even that much more vibrant and useful going forward. Somebody asked me recently, you know, have you ever seen a completely fully functional family that's that's got no detriments or anything, you know, that they're doing it right, you know, in quotes. I said, yeah, it's a, a family of one person. <laughs> and even they're screwing it up. Uh, no, nothing, it, 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 when you introduce two people to each other, the, the, nothing is ever perfect. And, that, and that's, that's what makes things fun. And, and frankly, that's what keeps people like us busy. Uh, because if everything were smooth and easy, then uh, you, know, there, you wouldn't have problems to solve. But the fact of the matter is, is that uh, even that one person, you know, if you get back to sort of regular financial planning and you know, get out of the ultra high net worth situation, you know, they, they could, uh, you know, they could get in a drunk driving accident, or they're, you know, they could get, uh, you know, a tree fall on them and have a disability that impacts their income, and that is a problem to solve. You know, life intervenes, and that's something where you know you try to be as a good trustee, you try to do right by as many people as possible and and balance the needs of, of each of the different classes of people who are affected by what you do and, and do it in a fair way. Where can people get a copy of your book? Oh, good stuff. Uh, you can get a copy of Wealth Actually on Amazon. Uh, if you Google Fraser Rice Wealth Actually, you can find that pretty quickly. Uh, Podcast wise, I'm on uh, I'm on Spotify, iTunes, all the major platforms, and you can find that on FraserRice.com. And if you're interested in the trustee side of things, uh, you can find me at PendletonSquareTrust.com. Are we going to see a wealth actually part two? Uh, I am currently hard at work on re-upping, uh, or revamping uh, the book a little bit. I am going to add a couple of chapters on the trust and asset protection side of things, and uh, hopefully we'll see that early next year. Last question. Lessons learned, going back to when you started in this space, knowing what you know today, what's, what's the thing that you wish you could have told a younger version of yourself? Uh, the most important thing I tell myself even now is do everything you possibly can to keep your creative pilot light on. Uh, because if, if the job, uh, if the job becomes a job 
and that's it. Then that that is a slow burn and and not much fun. Uh, the creative pilot light, uh, whether it's come in the form of writing a book or other artistic things, and then doing the podcast and so on. It's it's I've been able to take the day job uh, and sort of the wealth structuring and the uh, dealing with uh, the problems and opportunities of ultra high net worth people, but stitching it to things that I'm also interested in, and I think that makes me. Uh, a different cat uh, as it relates to the wealth management world. And, and it's led to a lot of different doors opening that I didn't really expect to have open. And at the same time, it's created a lot of interesting focus and, and it keeps things interesting and vibrant for me. Well, thanks, Fraser. Uh, I really appreciate you joining today. Uh, Edward, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun to be on. Thanks to uh, all of you for listening in. If you'd like to get in touch with Fraser or you have any questions, you can also send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation or are so inclined, do subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spot- Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Uh, as always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, check out our website. That is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.